as any good story, right, we need to go back to last week's very, very briefly, right, on the TV shows, right, before the, uh, the intro theme song, right, they always give that little brief last week on whatever. Um, but today, let's pick up here in chapter 8, verse 2, right, um, where we left off last week, it says, And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai and and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Do you remember that complete course of destruction that was set before Mordecai? Right? He was due to die in the morning. Right? He was sentenced to death, to die on that really high gallows. Do you remember how the really bad guy Haman was about to win, not only by killing everyone or all of his enemies, but... Remember how he had amassed all this power, number two, in the kingdom? And so we, we were exploring that those past couple of weeks. And then um, what did we see happen last week and the week prior? We saw that this man, Haman, who had all of the power, who had all uh, everything seemingly going for him, how everything was right, reversed in one day, maybe one of the biggest single power reversals um, that we have seen, and how Haman loses his very own life, how? In the very way that he prescribed for his enemy Mordecai, right? And how he died according to his own plans. And now, not only was it the death that we saw reversed, but what do we read in verse 2? It has to do with the king's, uh, his signet ring, right? So not only is Haman killed on the way that he wanted Mordecai to die, but now the power that Haman once had is given to Mordecai, signified by this signet ring. And so last week, we all breathed a collective sigh of relief when we walked out of here, didn't we? Mordecai doesn't die. And how a big reversal had happened. But... We still have a pretty significant issue, don't we? It's actually the primary issue of the book of Esther. There is still a serious plot that we haven't seen the end of it. And what is this plot? It's that very first law, right? That first edict of the king, the one that Haman wrote, that the seed or that the Jews are still on a path towards destruction and towards annihilation and how the king's edict right written by Haman is still in effect and that God's chosen people are about to die so when we left last week despite the fact we had a collective relief sigh of relief there's still a whole lot of tension actually the primary issue of the whole book of Esther right and sometimes I feel like at least, that when my life is perfect, when my individual self is just fine, it's easy for me to breathe that collective sigh of relief, right? Despite the fact that so many around me are dealing with the difficulties. Right? And in a sense, that's what we're seeing here. Mordecai is doing just fine, but all of the other people, what? There's still a death sentence. And that's where we pick up here in verse, chap in, in verse uh, number three. So let's, let's read. 
verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? I'm willing to bet, at least it was new to me a number of months ago, that so many of us have forgotten um, that Esther goes back to the king uninvited a second time. We always talk about that first time when she goes with that poise and when she goes with a plan before the king, right? But this second time, how is she going before the king? She's pleading with them and she's weeping with them. It's like she bursts into the throne room, uninvited, waiting like, I, I can't give him an opportunity to not extend. I got to come in and just show him that this is so heavy on my heart and in my mind. And she's pleading and she's weeping, saying, king, you've got to do something about this. She's presenting it in a sense before he can respond. Why? Because if he does not put out that scepter, what happens to Esther? She gone, right? She will die. But here we read, what does the king do? He reaches out. He extends that golden scepter. And here we see Esther, the intercessor, is invited to bring her request before the king. And her request, my people are going to die. And King, you have the power to avert the crisis. I beg of you, how can I see the calamity coming to my people or the destruction coming to my kindred? And this is where we see the king respond here in verse 7. Let's read. So verse 7, then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Let's simplify the response. What's he saying? Hey, Esther, um... Don't you remember that I've given you, given Mordecai that, that ring? Right? Don't you remember that he already has the power? That it's vested in him because of what I've given to him. So go and take care of the situation. Which kind of reminds us, believer, of the Holy Spirit and the power which God has vested that indwells us today, does it not? Now, we, we have to talk about the, the edicts, right? It, what happens once an edict is written or once a law is written? What happens? 
It has to be carried out. There's no other recourse. You can't repeal the thing. And so how do you try to repeal a, a law that can't be revoked? You've kind of got to work your way around it. And so that's what we see here. How do you work your way around something like this? Something that's consequences must be carried out. The first edict or the, that law that says all of the Jews are going to be killed, its consequences will be carried out. Just like my silly decisions, my sin, my bad behaviors, the natural consequences, what? Are irrevocable. Just like none of us can sidestep the consequences of our own actions. And so Esther and Mordecai enact a plan here in verse 9. It says, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written, according to all that Mordecai had commanded the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, to each province in its own script, and to each people its own language. I'm going to refrain about the importance of translating the Bible into all languages <laughs> on that point, but into all the Jews in their script and their language. Again, I'll refrain. Verse 10. And he wrote, and there's a stink bug literally walking on the pulpit right now. <laughs> I am half tempted. <laughs> All right, I, uh, I digress. Let's pick up in verse 10. <laughs> All right. Um, and he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's ring. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying, now catch it, this is what it says, this is the new law, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. And so the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. So how do they fix the issue? The issue that that first law says every single Jew will be killed, annihilated, destroyed, and all their stuff was going to be taken. They fix it with what? A new law, one to counteract, if you will, the previous one. And what does it say? Verse 11 tells us that the Jews are allowed by the king to kill, one, to gather and defend their lives. To kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them and to plunder their goods. Now, how many of us, if we're being honest, say, I, I don't really like this. It seems a little bit intense. 
me to, when I first read this, my knee-jerk reaction is, oh, no, thank you. And although it seems rather gruesome, if you compare it, and you can do this on your own time if you'd like, with the very first edict, which happens, which you can um, see in chapter 3, verse 13, you will notice that they are lockstep, one in the same. This is literally a counteraction to each of the previous points in the first edict. But also, what does it say? That the Jews are allowed to defend, right? They're allowed to take out any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. This isn't a blank slate saying, hey, take out whoever you want to take out. No, it's, it's a defense to go and take out their enemies, those who might seek harm to them. And second thing to note here is that the Jews are allowed. How are they going to carry this out? The very first phrase of this edict says what? They are to gather. They're allowed to come together. Right, the whole power in numbers. In other words, you're not going to fight in your house, and you're not going to fight in your house. We're all we're going to die if that happens. But if we come together, and we see them coming together to fight the battle. Do we? Do we come together, church Christians, on our battlefields of of prayer, of ministry? there's power in numbers when the people of God come together. Verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And Susa, the, the city of Susa, shouted and rejoiced. Now, it's fall, you know, we're all kind of wearing our earth tones and loving it, but imagine a whole world where there's only earth tones, right? He's, this Mordecai is in blue and white and purple, rich, vibrant colors, showing his ascent to power and how he's becoming more and more powerful by the colors he's wearing in a very mundane world. It goes on in verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy, and honor. And in every province, and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews. There was a feast and a holiday. And many people from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now we read, friends, how this second edict becomes the joy of the Jews. How is it received? It's received with light and gladness and joy and honor. And they celebrate it with a feast and a holiday. But as big of a deal as this is, what's the other issue that's still on the table? That first edict. The one that says the enemies of the Jews can still come to try to take them out. Despite the fact that there's still about to be a, a serious showdown or, or a bloody battle, if you will, this news that they're not going to be utterly destroyed is welcomed with joy and gladness. With joy 
and with gladness, that they will not be utterly destroyed. In verse 17, as we just read, what's it say? And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of Jews had fallen on them. Take note of that phrase, that fear had fallen. Fear falls. We see it three times in today's text. So it's probably a little important. What does it mean? Well, fear um, in these three instances, think, think these words, um, to shiver, to tremble, to be startled or in terror, um, literally, to shiver and to tremble. So this starts to beg the question, why are people shivering and why are people trembling in fear? What's really happening here? To which I'd say, let's just try to put ourselves in the story. So imagine you are, I don't know, this, this empire's from India all the way to um, Ethiopia. Huge empire. So let's just say you're somewhere in Afghanistan, right? Somewhere relatively close to the center. So we're a number of thousand years back. Here we are on one particular day at the beginning of the year, you get an edict. An edict, a law that says all of that one people group, all of these Jews are going to be killed one day and all their stuff's going to be taken from them. And you're like, oh man, someone really doesn't like this group of people in the king's house. I'm sorry for them, but I'm, I, I'm sure glad that I'm not one of them. And then not quite three months later, you get another law as the king's horses are dispersed across the whole kingdom. And you know what this one says? The exact opposite of what that first one says. And with it comes news of this Mordecai guy who was supposed to die. And the guy that wrote that first one was killed instead of Mordecai. And how this Mordecai guy is now in that position. You're starting to feel the sense of, oh my goodness, these tables are turning. Those seismic reversals. And how all of those all of the, the talk of the town starts to turn into these, what we've read these past few weeks. Well, these people are supposed to die, and now this Mordecai guy's getting more power, and now less than a few months later, everything's changing. There is so clearly a turn of events, right? And it's spread across the biggest empire on the planet. There's something going on. You just, I can imagine the talk of the town, right? Around the, the water wells or around the, um, the fire pits. There's something at play. That guy that had the powers now dead and someone else, has the guy that he wanted to kill now has the, something is at play. And so, friends, we see that the onlooking world cannot help but to see that there is another power at play here. The power of the one true God who's marshalling all of the peoples and all of the events and all of the actions and even the kings and the, the guys in power. You pick it. He's marshalling all of this for his glory. And, and we see that the people's Fall in uh, fear falls on them because you cannot deny what's going on. There is someone, God, who has his fingers in all of it. And as Tricia read for us in Psalm 86, 
All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. And he's going to be glorified one way or the other. Now, side note, we read in chapter 3, verse 13, that this first edict goes out on the 13th day of the first month, and that the second edict goes out on the 23rd day of the third month. If you go back to the old calendars and count your days, it is exactly 70 days, a, a number of restoration that we see throughout Scripture. God is going to be glorified in the big things and the ups and downs of kingdoms and who's in power and what decisions they're made. And he's even going to be glorified by the tiny details he has his fingers in and around and through them all. No wonder, no wonder fear fell on the people. On the people of the world. Who are these Jews? And who is their God that he changes things like this for them? And how do they act on their fear? What does verse 17 tell us they do as a result of their fear? It says, many declared themselves to be Jews. Now, the text doesn't exactly tell us what their motivation was, but there's two things we can um, probably assume. The first is that God is making his glory known among the nations, among the peoples. And there's undeniably, but we can imagine, true legitimate people who are coming to faith as a result of this. Whenever they look and they see God's fingers through it all. But then there's probably, a, a, and maybe even more likely, and that's, and you all are aware of this, the, the opportunists, right? The people who say, well, you know, if, if the queen's a Jew, okay, and this Mordecai guy's a Jew, and he's getting more and more powerful, hmm, it might be beneficial economically, socially, politically, you name it, if I just start calling myself a Jew. Right? If I start calling myself a Christian, maybe I can go get that girl or that guy. Right. If I just start going to church with so-and-so, then maybe right, the opportunists, um, there are undeniably opportunists right, to become a Jew, to use it for their own personal advantage. And that brings us to chapter 9. Let's read chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. This is huge. This is when it's all coming down and we're still kind of on eggshells. Who's going to win? And it says, the reverse occurred. This isn't supposed to happen. They're the ones supposed to be getting destroyed. And the text tells us very clearly that the Jews are the one who gain mastery. 
over their enemies, the ones who at one point had the power. Verse 2. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for fear of them had fallen on all peoples. How could it not? All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. God's still very much at work. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also Parsha Dathatha, Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Amadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Pocket that last phrase for a moment. No hand on the plunder. But we see here, Mordecai is getting bigger and bigger. And we're seeing that government officials are now in favor of the Jews. Again, probably because selfishly they don't want to get in trouble with, with Mordecai up there. Right? He's getting bigger and bigger. And God's working behind the scenes. Verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther... In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. And so the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now this seems grotesque, doesn't it? How they would go and they would kill Haman's sons and they would hang him on, hang each of them on the gallows. Right? But this, in a sense, is exactly what we see, the historical and the cultural context. You, you wipe out the old regime. You wipe it out completely and totally. And so while it seems super grotesque, and it is, to us, um, it, was, it was normal, if you will, in, in those days often wondered if this is kind of where we get hangman from, but um, that's probably for another time. And reread here, and, and another question I, I have long thought through is, why another day of killing? Why does Esther say, King, here in Susa, we want another day to kill everyone because we didn't kill them today? Hmm. Which there's... There's a possible thing, right, as beating the system, isn't there? 
as knowing what the folks on the ground are thinking and knowing, well, if we try to beat the system, these are the enemies of the Jews talking, right? If we try to beat the system, we don't go on this first day because they're allowed to kill us back. But if we just sit back and wait to go on the second day, um, a lot of folks have conjectured or thought that that might be what's going on. Well, we still know of 300 folks who, who are planning something, um, but they didn't come out on, at us on day one, so we got day two. So a number of folks have thought through, um, thought through the text in, in that manner. Um, but let's take this to the end. Verse 16. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, on the, uh, and on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews in the villages who live in rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts and food to one another. So how many people were killed? How many enemies of the Jews? 75,000. You know, Haman wasn't the only hater of the Jews, was he? 75,000. It's, it's everywhere. There's a whole lot of hate we see here in this story. But the Jews gain mastery over them. Again, three times in this text, we see one phrase. They laid no hands on the plunder. See it show up three times. Now, why? Why would they not lay any hands on the plunder? Well, many folks have thought, now the text doesn't exactly tell us. It does not tell us they did not lay hands on the plunder because. However, it seems that the Jews are saying salvation is enough. Our lives are enough. We're not looking to get materially rich off of this, but the salvation from that first edict, from our destruction, the gratefulness to even be alive was enough. Others have conjectured, and only conjectured, that they didn't lay hands on the plunder because a number of the Jews remember that first command that God gave to King Saul. If you want to explore it, you're welcome to in 1 Samuel 15 on your own time. But that first command to Saul that he's supposed to kill all of the Amalekites and to kill everything they own, the horse, the cattle, and the sheep, all of it. And King Saul did not kill all of the Amalekites, and he did not kill all of their things, but he took some of the plunder. And so some folks have conjectured that this was the Jews trying to stay within obedience of that old command. But again, you may chase that if you would like. But here's the point. 
this story today, we finally resolve the big issue. The issue that the, the Jews are going to be killed. And how do they celebrate it? With feast, with a holiday, with joy. Their salvation is now complete. This is an ultimate victory. And so we turn from the story to a time of, of application. What do we do with this historical account as we look at 2022? Well, well first, there's a question. Who is the hero in the book of Esther? It's not the namesake, right? It's not Esther. It's not Mordecai. It's not King Ahasuerus. The hero is God. The hero is God. Who's doing the work? We even see it today and immediately before the fighting starts. God is still at work. And when this new edict comes, this joy of the Jews, it's joy. Why? Because they had a serious hope of salvation. Before it, under that first edict, under that first law, death was coming. Death was coming. And even though there's still great uncertainty with this second law, there's a hope of salvation. Friends, in, in the same way, we today who have that hope of salvation in Christ, in his new covenant sealed with his blood, may we get in the game like the Jews did. If they'd have just sat around and not come together and they said, well, we're We've got this new law that says we're allowed to defend. But if they didn't defend themselves, what would have happened? We wouldn't be reading this story in the same way, wouldn't we? They came together and they, they fought on the battlefield. And so may we today, as we look towards our ultimate salvation, when, when Christ returns or when he plucks us up out of this earth with, with our death, when we rise to him, may we get in the game and like they did with that first edict by uniting they're on their battlefield. May we do that as we unite together in, in prayer and in fellowship and in ministry as we wait our ultimate salvation. Like they had some suffering coming down the pike, we too know we have difficulties. But that's the, beside the point. The point is, they pressed on through, and we ought to as well. And why can we have this joy now? Why can we be certain for these things now? Throughout the series, we have, we've read time and time again about that phrase, the seed of the Jews. Do you remember this? The, the seed of the Jews. There's through God's promises in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 12 and throughout all of the scripture, we see this language, this seed. And so this seed has come perilously close from being wiped off the planet. This Jewish offspring, if you will. But we read today how the seed not only survives, how the Jewish nation not only survives, but thrives and is victorious. And as a result of that, we can now read in the New Testament the fulfillment 
of this seed, which is made manifest in who? In Christ Jesus. This seed, which again has come so close to being wiped off the face of the planet today, we read how it survives and how it ultimately comes to fruition through Christ Jesus. And so we can have this hope, this hope of ultimate joy that one day, because one day, one far greater than Esther, the intercessor, whose name is Jesus Christ, is now sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. How one far better than even the queen herself is sitting there in the throne room who doesn't even need permission. And as we read in Romans chapter 8, he is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Like Haman's edict, you and I are very much destined to die because of our sin, destined to destruction, because of our silly choices and our bad behaviors, our terrible thoughts. We are on a, a path, what? To death. But Christ extended his life, and God accepted it, right? As the payment for that death. In a sense, kind of like that golden scepter was extended. So friends, if you have never come to a knowledge or know about this Christ or what he did to, to pluck us out of that grip of death, to pluck us out of that law that says, we must die. Eternal death, I beg you. I ask you today, don't leave until you have that conversation with, with someone. The person you came with, some of the elders will be up front at the end just to carry on to start a conversation. And there's a promise. Just like God could not break and would not break his promises in Genesis 3 and 12, that this seed, that this Jesus will come from the Jewish line, you can take it to the bank. Here's the promise. For those who believe and are saved, we are given a special place before God. You believe that? We're given a place before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. A special place where we don't need that signet ring to punch in our power, to prove our power. Like Mordecai got that ring. No, no, no. It's so much better. And not only power, but far more than power have you and I, Christian, received. What is the promise? That Jesus promises his disciples, he said, if I leave, I will certainly leave a helper, my Holy Spirit. And so those of us who are in Christ, the promise is his, not only his power, but himself that he has planted in you and in me. Friends, those who are in Jesus are indeed his chosen people. And so... As the writer of Hebrews says, we can come boldly before 
the throne of grace. Before the king. Because we have one better than Esther. And we have one better than Mordecai. Because even we belong to the king himself. So friends, as we go to our battlegrounds. And there's a lot of them, aren't there? May we pull along other believers, other Christians, and unite together on those battlegrounds as we wait for that day when our ultimate salvation will come. And may we come boldly before his throne. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you will help us to to chew on the truth of your word, that those of us who are in Christ have a place and an opportunity to come boldly before your throne because Jesus Christ himself has made a way. Lord, will you give us the the encouragement day in and day out to press on in our battle, but not to go it alone, but to bring other believers around us. Help us in this. Lord, those of us who are unsure of whether we're even one of yours, whether we're even a Christian, will you help us to prompt a conversation today to get right with you? We pray these things in the powerful and the precious name of Jesus, our Lord. And God's people said,